written in Chinese, and he has no idea what they mean, but he has a lectionary of Chinese symbols that tells him if you get this symbol, respond this way. If you get this symbol, respond this way. And he will send back signals from the lectionary because it says if you get this, send this back. So by after a while, he gets to the point where he just instantly recognizes what the symbols are that are coming in, and he knows from experience, respond with this symbol, respond with that symbol. Question is, does he understand Chinese? Yeah. And this is what the, the novel is about. Humanity encounters something that, uh, and this was written like 10 years ago, before AI became like really, uh, you know, the hot topic item. Humanity encounters something that apparently can parrot back a very human-sounding response, but there's no way of determining if the thing sending it back is actually intelligent or not. And so, like I said, I'm about a third of the way into it. It is really well-written. Uh, I'm enjoying it immensely, and I would recommend it to anybody who's a science fiction fan, particularly those who are fans of first contact stories. It sounds good. It I'm, is. I'm rereading The Time Machine. <laughs> ah. I love that book. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that, give, give Wells credit. I mean, he created several very specific subgenres of science fiction. So, uh, yeah, very memorable book. It just, if he wasn't so darn Edwardian, um, there's some mm-hmm. problematic things that, they oh yeah. Um, well, he had. Yeah, you got to put it in problem, time period, you know. Yeah, <laughs> he was he was part of what was called the Fabian Group, and the Fabians were socialists, but they were authoritarian socialists, and and he he they believed that there should be a well-educated elite that runs the world uh, by socialist principles. And this reflects in some of his writings, uh, particularly if you've seen the movie Things to Come. You know, Things to Come, you watch it, and you get kind of uncomfortable towards the end of it, because even though they've stopped the war and they've rebuilt civilization, it, uh, it does not look like a very democratic society at that point. Yeah. But, um, uh, yeah, Wells, you can't fault Wells for having ambitions to better the human race, you can question what he thought would be the most effective strategies to do so. Yeah, it was also, um, I forgot what they call it, where you uh, you take a part of people that are, you know, you, you, you breed them out, the pe- parts of people. Yeah, that, eugenics. Eugenics. That, yeah. I couldn't think of the word. Yeah. Um, yeah. He also believed in that, that, because that was in Dr. Moreau. Yeah. yeah. That, that was a belief that was unfortunately all too common in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And then, of course, tragically, we saw, you know, when you put that stuff into actual application, you see what it looks like during the Holocaust. And so now we have backed away from that. Now we are recognizing, uh, you know, no, this is, there is no single perfect human genotype that uh, this is the ideal Superman and we want everybody to be like that. We have to have a, a wide variety of people of, uh, 
you know, abilities, of mindsets, of everything in order to function. We can't, we can't find that perfect human being. So, you know, we need, we need to accept everybody. I remember there was some episodes with the original Star Trek. Uh, the most famous space beat was Ricardo Montalban yeah. as Khan. Yeah. About um, the superhuman, the perfect human, all this, yeah. you know, all this stuff. But he was really, he was handsome, he was well-spoken, but he was a monster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, there, there were... The nice thing about Star Trek, the original series, is, is it, it, it's what I call the Doctor Who principle. And to me, the best Doctor Whos were the ones that were shot on shoestring budgets, where they basically said, look, if, if you will agree to pretend this papier-mâché rock is an alien planet, we will tell you an entertaining story. But you have to meet us halfway. You have to pretend that this is an alien world. You have to pretend this is really a robot. You have to pretend this is really a monster. You do that, and, and you'll get a good story. And the virtue of that is that you aren't required to be realistic. The stories can be a little more allegorical. They can be a little more, I won't say abstract, but a little more of the intellectual as opposed to the concrete. Um, now with special effects giving you these ultra-realistic scenes, you, you, you watch them do stories and it, it undermines the story because, well, this is kind of stupid when you think about it. And if you're, if you're watching a show with a paper mache rock and a painted backdrop that's an alien world, well, no, you're pretending along at that point. But if you're watching something that's got like, you know, HD special effects and every little nut and bolt visible, then, then it starts to undermine the story. I think the most touching episode was when, of uh, Star Trek, was the Horda episode about the, the, the silicon rocks that were yeah. alive. Yeah, yeah. That was right. such a touching episode. It was yeah. it was like it was really as far from being a human as you could possibly be, but still you felt for the mother and, and that her children were killed by accident, but still her children yeah. were killed and you had emotion for that rock. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And and it worked because it didn't look absolutely 100% realistic. You accepted, oh, that's a matte painting. Oh, these are, these are actors I've seen a dozen times before in cop shows and westerns. That, that monster really looks like a rug, doesn't it? But you're willing to pretend along. You're willing to go along with it. Uh, I, I posted a thing last month on my uh, blog about the only, what I consider to be the only good episode of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. It was an episode called The Cyborg. And my argument for it was, it's basically a comic book story, but it's a really smart comic book story. And it is told in such a stylized manner, the audience is never expected to accept it as reality. It is a sci-fi show. You subconsciously know that. And as a result, you just go over, ignore problems that in a realistic film would be popping up at you and you'd have to answer. You just ignore them and you go on. And it actually has a very strong point. It actually, you know, brings out 
a big question about how we know what is truth and facts. Really good episode. You can find it on YouTube if anybody's interested. It's got Victor Buono in it. He was a San Diego boy. So uh, cool. uh, really good episode. But anyway, I think the more realistic things look, the harder it is to kind of tell these these underlying stories with deeper meaning, if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. I, uh, it made me remember, you know, Lost in Space was never a nighttime show. It was Saturday morning. Yep. <laughs> the, and so they could get away with all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Because it wasn't at night. You know, it wasn't yeah. prime time. It wasn't for adults. It was supposed to be for kids. Yeah. And so they could get away with the green uh, plant that tried yeah. to eat the doctor and things like that, which looked like a sock puppet, you know? Yeah. Well, I I agree with you on that. I mean, I, I think one of the problems that Lost in Space had was that they were never the same show from one season to the next. They kept changing their focus all oh, the time. Oh, yeah. I know. I yeah. never understood that. I mean, when yeah. I was a kid, I didn't notice it, but when I was the adult re-watching it, I was like, what the hell are they doing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the first six episodes are among the finest kid vid sci-fi that's ever been done. Mm-hmm. Really good. And you can you can tell where the breaking point is because they they did an episode where the planet swings close to the sun and they have to go all the way to the north pole of the planet in order to survive. And Dr. Smith says, I'm going to stay here and just weather it out in the Jupiter too. And what was supposed to happen was that they come back and they just find a pile of ashes. That's all that's left of Dr. Smith. And he was going to be written out of the series. But by that time, he turned out to be the most popular character on the show. And so they go, well, we, we got to keep him. So in the end of the episode, they get a radio message from Smith that indicates he survived. And then, you know, he's back in the next episode, and he stayed for the rest of the series. I, I didn't remember that. I mean, I didn't remember that episode at all. I don't yeah. know. Um, there's some episodes I remember and some episodes I don't. I really yeah. actually, my, my, my memory, I just liked Robbie the Robot. Oh, yeah. Well, Robbie and the, the uh, robot from Lost in Space, they actually met twice, you know. Robbie, Robbie and from Forbidden the, Planet and the robot from Lost in Space. They, they, they actually they had, met? Yeah, they had two episodes where they meet face-to-face. There's one called War of the Robots where they're uh, fighting each other. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. I like No, I liked I liked the two robots. Those were my favorites. Oh, yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't remember them fighting each other. I remember oh, yeah. Robbie being in an episode, but I didn't remember them fighting each other. Yeah, yeah. I, I worked at Ruby Spears production, and Ruby Spears was Joe Ruby and Ken Spears, and they met on Lost in Space as sound engineers. They were, they were doing the sound editing for the show, and they went from there over to Hanna-Barbera to edit cartoons for Hanna-Barbera, and they couldn't figure out how the, the shows were supposed to link up. And they went to Joe Barbera and said, let us write one of these because we can't figure out how they're supposed to go together. And Joe Barbera said, sure. He let them write an episode. And son of a gun, they were really good at it. So he ended up hiring them as writers and then story editors. And then uh, they created Scooby-Doo and went on to form their own studio. <laughs> it is interesting. I, I, I just, just like... Um when I was a little girl, 
one of the Saturday afternoon shows was a show called Isis, the Isis the Goddess, the Egyptian. Yes, yes. And I love that show. And yeah. the thing is, is that my brother didn't remember it. None of my friends remember it. I was like, it's like almost like it was just, I, I could visualize it. And it was like, it was almost like, and then I went to a collectible show, and I found the VHS, which tells you when the collectible show was, uh, mm-hmm. of Isis. And it has her, I still have it on my desk, um, um, it has her in the Egyptian outfit as yeah. Isis with her falcon uh, on her arm. And I love that show. And it's like, see, it really did happen. It was yeah. real. Yeah. <laughs> um, there, there was a writer on that show, Michael Reeves, who, who unfortunately just passed away a few months ago. But Michael figured out how to make the show really spectacular without costing him a dime. He figured out ISIS could make things not happen. So she would fly in and say, damn, don't burst, bridge, don't collapse. There was any number of things she could make not happen, and they just loved him. They let him write a whole bunch of scripts for him. But, you know, just just have her show up and stop things, stop bad things from happening. Gee, I wish there really was a superhero who could do that. <laughs> I wish so, too, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, that was one of my favorite. I didn't even realize until I rewatched the VHS when I got it. Um, I didn't realize that it was a spinoff of Captain America. Yeah, I didn't even remember well, not Captain it. America, Captain Captain Marvel, Cap- which was Captain called America. Shazam, because there is an incredibly convoluted story behind that, which we won't go into. Basically, DC sued. Captain Marvel out of existence, uh, but then they acquired Captain Marvel, and once they acquired Captain Marvel, they wouldn't let him be shown as Captain Marvel. He had to be shown as Shazam, so that's why he's Shazam now in DC. Okay, because I, I didn't remember, but I they had one episode with him. It's like a cross yeah. episode, and I went, yeah. oh, I didn't even remember that it was a spinoff. Yeah, because uh, yeah. <laughs> I only remember her. Um, yeah. Because I I loved her. I because first of all I wanted even at that young age I wanted to be an archaeologist and she was an archaeologist and she was a history mm-hmm. teacher and so I thought and she was really smart and she was sweet and it, it, she was like one of my favorites. Um, she was a lot like Wonder Woman, but without the whip and the plane and all that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's 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 because. <laughs> That's because uh, Filmation Studios couldn't afford a plane. <laughs> <laughs> the invisible plane. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, that's one of the cool things about Linda Carter's Wonder Woman. Yeah. Was the invisible plane was in it. Yeah, yeah. No, I like I like the Linda Carter Wonder Woman a lot, the, uh, particularly the first season when it was set during World War II. Where it was supposed I, I, to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I felt when they moved it to modern times, they kind of lost, you know, the, I don't want to say campiness, but they lost the... The fun. The fun, yeah. They lost the fun that made the origin, the, the first season so much fun. And then, you know, they just kept monkeying with it and, and not improving it. But what, four seasons? That's not bad. That's not bad. And yeah. I really, 
I thought there were some really clever episodes of, oh, uh, did, yeah, of Wonder yeah. Woman. And, um, you know, until from Wonder Woman to Xena, there really wasn't a female superhero. No. Uh, it, it, that whole thing went... Um, so, like, like Isis and, and, and Wonder Woman, that was it in the yeah. 70s. And then until, like, was it the late 90s that Xena came? I, I think so. Let me, let me take a quick look. Do you remember a show called Cleopatra 2525? Yeah, that was after Xena, but yeah, I remember that. was that. after Xena, mm -hmm. okay, yeah, because I, I remember trying to get into that, and I was watching it, and it was like, well, this is just really kind of like a dumb bikini girl movie, and yeah, there really wasn't a lot that was appealing about it. I mean, the, you know. The thing about it is, is they wasted really talented actors. Yeah. All three of them were spectacular. And if you see them in the stuff they're doing now, you see that they wasted them. I was, like, really disappointed because it was the same company that did Xena. And i like, why aren't you getting the writers at the level you have for Xena uh, doing this? You know, it just, I was very disappointed. Yeah. I think that's why it didn't last very long. But it, it was, a, yeah. it was... It was a good try, um, yeah. but um, spectacular actors, and yeah. um, I just, yeah, the storylines, sorry. Yeah. I, I mean, sorry, writers. I love you, writers. Yeah. <laughs> 1995, that was when Xena started. Okay. It was about the same year as Buffy, I think, because that's Buffy yeah. and Xena were about almost equal. They both came out about the same time. And that was that was the beginning of girl power for a while. And now it's gone again. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, I don't know. You get a really successful show, and it's like, and I, why they don't continue doing stuff like that, I don't understand. Well, I'm a huge fan of the original Dick Van Dyke show. And mm -hmm. they quit after five seasons because... They were they were having a tough time coming up with stories at the end of season five, and they realized it's only going to get tougher. We have we have pretty much said everything we have to say in this format, in this in this show, and um, they they made the very wise decision to quit while they were on top. Uh, too many shows. I mean, you know, the classic example of, of a show jumping the shark literally is uh, Happy Days. Mm -hmm. It's like you, you you hit a really high note, and then once you recognize that you were in a, a state of decline, you should have just graciously bowed out and ended it, and ended it on a high note, but, you know, petered it out. Well, you know that Henry Winkler hates that that was what was the, what they call jumping the shark, because he goes, of all the things that he did athletically on the show, the only thing he was really good at that was something he could do was jet ski and the, um, and water ski and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And he goes, the one time I showed off my only athletic skill, I'm yeah. forever hearing about jumping the shark because of it. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, I don't I don't blame him for the idea. That was Gary Marshall's fault, but. Uh... Yeah, the, you, I, I, I'm a firm believer that you just have to recognize there's a time and place for everything, and, and sometimes you reach the end, and you just say, 
this is the end. Yeah. And uh, you let it, you you let people leave with a very strong positive memory. Oh, uh, yeah. And I really like Happy Days. It's just that when they started, when people started leaving the show, like mm-hmm. when Ron Howard left and yeah. and um, Anson Williams left and all these people, it, it just, it kind of ruined the mix because there was a chemistry. Yeah. And especially yeah. Ron Howard. Ron Howard was essential to Happy yeah. Days. Yeah. And, no, and, I, I, and, I agree and, on that. And the relationship between uh, Henry Winkler and Ron Howard as Fonzie and uh, I almost said Opie and I know that's from Anne no, Griffith's show. Richie. Richie, Richie Cunningham. Richie. The, the, that was such a special relationship. Yeah. It was like like brothers. Uh, it was like yeah. it's such a good relationship. So when they took him out of the mix it was, and they were trying to focus it on Henry yeah. and uh, Fonzie. It yeah. was like it it lost its way, mm-hmm. and um, and nothing against the young actor who came in as the cousin. He was a good actor, but it just it wasn't the same show. I mean, really, I stopped watching and I watched the the last show because everybody came back. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause, oh, and Joni left the show too. I mean, mm-hmm. and Chachi, they're all were gone, yeah. and it just yeah. lost its zip. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it it you're right, and they lost the zip because they made the the classic error that uh, well, if we have one show that's a hit, if we take some of the people who make it a hit and put them in their own show, then we'll have two hits, and it doesn't work that way. I mean, even even the Mary Tyler Moore show. Um, they had the Rhoda spinoff, and they had the, um, uh, what was the character? that Phyllis, Phyllis spinoff. Phyllis didn't do that well. Rhoda did okay. Uh, but but uh, in both cases, it was detrimental to the main show. And, and the reason the Mary Tyler Moore show survived was that they wisely did not try to replace the character types, they brought in different character types. They like brought Betty White. In Betty White <laughs> as just that, oh, oh, she was, that was the finest role I think she ever had. She was hilarious. Sue Ann uh, Yeah, exactly. And, and they realized, don't try to put in a substitute for someone who's left, bring in something entirely different. And it worked. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, uh, that's that's like my third favorite sitcom of all time. You I got Dick love, Van Dyke, you got Dick Van Dyke, WKRP, and then Mary Tyler Moore. Oh, Mary Tyler Moore should be higher up. <laughs> I I will I will not disparage anyone who thinks it should be higher up. I just I just have to go with personal preference here. I I love Mary Tyler. Uh, okay, you can tell I'm a girl, but my favorite shows were first uh, That Girl. Yes. Loved that girl. Mary Tyler Moore show. And then um, there's one more, and I'm blanking out on the name. I lo- it was another female-oriented show, and I can't remember the name. I can't remember. Um, but those two, I, for sure, that girl and Mary Tyler Moore, I love those shows. 
they were my childhood, they were my teenhood, they were, uh, it's like what Oprah said when she had the reunion with the cast, they, they were her Saturday night, they were her, you know, they were her everything. And I really, I relate to that because um, I wanted to be Anne-Marie growing up. I wanted to be Mary growing up. I mean, who wouldn't? Uh <laughs> The, the thing that a lot of people fail to understand about that girl is is just how radically different it was at the time. Uh-huh. It was the first TV show about a young woman all on her own, working at a career, having her ups and downs, but never being defeated, always continuing to work at her career. And, and whatever misadventure she might have in a particular episode, the underlying message was she gets work. She gets cast in dumb things, but she gets cast. She appears in crazy plays, but she's appearing in plays. Yeah. And it was telling people your dreams can come true. You may have to work hard for them, but they can come true. And the thing it was is, a really good show. It was one, it's my favorite because she was – really a positive role model she yes. she was she like you said she um she kept going even though okay. things weren't go even i mean let's face it she lost every waitress job she ever had because if an audition came in mm-hmm. she was out of there um yeah if it wasn't for her dad she probably would have starved um mm-hmm. <laughs> Because her dad, when he showed up, he always had a bag of groceries. Did you ever notice that? Yeah. <laughs> and the thing that she wanted most was, um, see, she was offered a bunch of parts. She was, um, she had done a pilot, and they loved the pilot. Didn't do very well, but her, her, whatever you call it, um, her reality. Yeah. Uh, that that was like they they um, apparently Breck uh, Hare loved her and wanted her to be in their next show, and so um, they gave her a bunch of scripts, but it was always the daughter, the mother, the wife, yeah. and she says I don't want to do that, and she talked to the head of the studio, who she said luckily was a really nice man, and she goes Did you ever hear? I forgot the name of the book, but it's by Betty Friedan. What's, do you remember? The Feminine Mystique? Feminine Mystique. Did you ever hear The Feminine Mystique? It's about how women are trying to create a life. It's not, um, it's for, uh, that you you can have wonderful men in your life, but you, you have your own focus and stuff, and you still have relations yeah. and stuff. Mm-hmm. And she goes, that's what I want. That's what I want. And she goes, I'll tell you what. And this is the funniest part. Um, in, in the interview, she even giggled when she told it. She told him that she could get Persky and, oh, what was the partner? I know who you're talking about, but I can't remember the name right now. Yeah. Um, and it was she, a writing team, yeah. They worked for her dad doing yeah. the um, Danny Thomas show, um, Make Room for Daddy. Yeah. And she says, I can get them. She goes, and she said, in the interview, she says, I didn't really know if they would do it. She said, I just uh, knew they were the hottest writing team. And she goes, and I knew them because we did uh, charades once a week. So uh-huh. that's how she knew them. 
And it turns out that the reason I remember Persky, because I remember what he said, he wanted to, he was sick of doing male-oriented shows. He wanted to do a show focused on a woman, and she just timed it perfectly. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, he, and he and his partner both said, yeah, we want to do something different. We're sick of doing shows that are centered on guys. Mm-hmm. And that's how that girl came about, was because mm-hmm. of what, and she said she didn't want her to get married, and uh, she didn't even want her to get engaged. She uh, she goes, she wanted them to be boyfriend and girlfriend, and but she didn't want the marriage part because it's that it was she felt it was a cop out mm-hmm. that here she is you know uh wanting to be miss independence and all this stuff and then at the end they're going to marry her off like a jane austen novel she just yeah. didn't feel it was right so yeah. that's why they didn't they had that weird thing where the fantasy wedding thing but mm-hmm. it, but she never really got married they they were just um, in fact, the last show, she took Donald to a women's liberation meeting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a bet. He lost the bet. Yeah. He had to go to the women's liberation meeting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, it that was such an influence on me. I mean, mm-hmm. here I am, I think when the show was 65 or 66. So I think I started watching it and rerun at six years old. Uh-huh. And then the live shows, um, the you know, the nighttime shows, I saw it start, I watched them the last year, two years or something yeah. like that. And, yeah. I mean, it was, just, I, I, I was a feminist. I became yeah. a feminist because of that girl. <laughs> That girl was no. It was a it was a tremendous show. Uh, I remember it when I when it came on, um, and it was as I recall, it was it was initially pitched to audiences as uh, you know, oh, it's you know the ditzy ditzy actress thing, and they they were pitching it as one kind of thing, and I think it caught people by surprise in a good way. They they realized, well, this is actually a show that's got a lot of heart to it. Mm-hmm. This is. This is about something. This mm-hmm. is not just how many how many embarrassing situations can we put you know the the star in. This is actually about somebody's quest for their own identity, quest for their own career, shaping their own future. Um, and yeah, it, it it is a Quixotic quest in that any any showbiz career, even the successful ones, is a long shot. The successful ones are just the ones where the long shot pays off. But it accurately reflected that. It accurately mm-hmm. reflected all the things that you had to do just to work your way up the food chain. You had and, to be uh, a chicken. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, that was an episode. Oh, I, I remember the one where she ends up being the mop on the kids' show. Oh, that yeah. That, <laughs> that was, I think that was the pilot, Buzz. It was? Yeah. Okay. That was that the was one where her parents were uh, breaking up. Because yeah. uh, uh, she had moved out, and her father wanted her mother to move in to spy on her, and yeah, yeah. and um, and she came and she goes, oh, so you're here to spy on me? She goes, no, I left him because he wanted me to spy on you, but I have nowhere else to go, so I'm coming <laughs> to stay here. <laughs> no, that, no, that's that's what made that show so good. I mean, the family dynamics were believable; they were realistic. Um, the the scale. This is another thing. 
Um, I find too many shows nowadays, the scale is too large. It's like, it's always a world-threatening crisis. It's always, you know, an alien invasion. It's always a magician, you know. They did stories that were on a very human scale. Even if you weren't in showbiz, you could understand the struggle she was going through just trying to make her way in the world. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, that's something I, th I think um, we're missing in a lot of entertainment today. Everything has to be so big and so over the top. Just give us some stuff that we're, we find interesting. Give heart. Us, give us something that's and fun. got some heart to it. Heart yeah. and fun. That's, a, that's yeah. what's missing in sitcoms today. There's no yeah. heart and no fun. Uh. Yeah. I had, a, I had a friend who used to describe that as, as uh, they sprayed it with fun away. <laughs> I remember the third show. You're going to laugh at me, though. <laughs> Bewitched. Ah, yes, Bewitched. That was an interesting one. So I just, I loved I, it, the magic. I loved Samantha, and I loved, mm -hmm. I and and I loved uh, Darren and and Dora and and Maurice and Uncle Arthur. Yeah. And 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 uh, uh, Elizabeth playing the other part of Serena. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It just, it was just, oh. That's it, a fun it show. Was, it was a silly sitcom, but the right kind of silly. It mm -hmm. acknowledged its silliness. It, 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 it's the kind of show that says at the very beginning, okay, all bets are off. Anything can happen. Just just sit back and enjoy it. And once you once you're given permission to do that, then then you can you can embrace it. Then you go, okay, this is. This is crazy. This is this is nuts, but fine. I'm laughing. That's all that that it has to do. Make me laugh. And they had such great actors. Oh yeah. I mean, and you, you know, I think I got my appreciation of Shakespeare from Maurice Evans as Maurice, because there was there an episode that he didn't break into Shakespeare. <laughs> 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 I grew up listening to Shakespeare because I watched yeah. Bewitched. <laughs> That's why it wasn't like a shock to my system when, like some of the other kids, when yeah. even though they were my age, when we went to English class and they started having us read from Shakespeare. Oh yeah, Maurice taught to this one. <laughs> you know, this is I'm going to I'm going to break away for a moment here, but it's something I've noticed in a lot of people. Um, they they ask me where do you get your ideas, and I say I'm bombarded all day long. And and don't you pick up on these things that things just come flying at you mm -hmm. from every direction. And we'll be talking about history, or we'll be talking about Shakespeare, or we'll be talking about movies or something, and. I'll go, well, yeah, that was based on this and that. And say, how do you know this? And I'm going, how do you not know it? Exactly. The information is out there like a fire hose, and you're not getting wet. <laughs> you're not getting wet. <laughs> That's good. I like that analogy. <laughs> I'm part of a, a mystery reading group online, 
and it's golden age mysteries and it's really fun because I'm I'm learning authors I've never heard of so I'm reading all these uh I mean really the only golden age authors uh that I knew were Agatha Christie, Dorothy Sayers, Ellery Queen, um um the guy who wrote Sin Man, Dashiell Hammett, and that's Dashiell it. Hammett, yeah. yeah, and that's really oh and um Sam Spade. I forgot yeah. that. The, uh, whoever wrote Sam Spade. Those were the those were the ones. Yeah. Those were the ones I knew. That's it. Yeah. And you're on discovering this entire world of writers that I'd never heard of before. But the weird thing is, Buzz, is that when you're talking about it, you end up talking about their, the adaptions, and then when you start talking about the adaptions, you talk about other movies, and you. It, it's like the books. And, and movies they mix together and uh-huh. and the inspiration that's there is monumental but how can you not see it the people don't uh-huh. you know and I and I think yeah. it's the same today I think it's the same I think that yeah. you know because they're in their own little box people don't look beyond the box yep no, that's that's uh, that's so true. I mean, I'm I'm um, I've, I follow a number of uh, comics um, pages on Facebook, and the ones I don't follow are the superhero-oriented ones because generally the people in the superhero-oriented ones they they they're barely aware that there were comics other than superheroes. Oh um, yeah, I'm. The Archies. I'm a big Archies fan. Archies? <laughs> the Archies. Well, you know, Archies, you had, you had Walt Disney comics. Yeah, I had those, you had, too. <laughs> you had Gold Key that had all of these different kinds of stories. They would have detective stories, westerns, movie adaptations. Um, Looney Tunes. You had Looney Tunes. Well, you had romance comics you had true crime comics and there was war comics like they would have like world war ii yeah they had just this enormous variety of material out there and yet today i'd say 90 percent of the people who identify as comics fans the only thing they know about are are uh superhero comics and in most cases they don't know about anything that came before the Marvel age, and in a lot of cases, they're not aware of anything that came before the year 2000. That's the, that's the thing that drives me crazy about movies, that, that people don't know anything that happened before, forget 2000, before 1990s. I mean, 1990s may, seems to be like the break-off time. It's the weirdest thing, and they won't watch black-and-white movies. I'm like... Are you kidding me? Some of the best movies ever made are black and white. Um, the Day the Earth Stood Still, um, Bringing a Baby, um, uh, Now Voyager. There's so many great movies in black and white. I'm going to tell you something, and this, this might irritate you, but I apologize in advance if it does. On YouTube, there are a number of people who have been taking old silent films colorizing them Ugh. and then then adding music sound effects and uh, in the case of Laurel and Hardy they've been lifting dialogue from the, the sound Laurel and Hardy films to kind of put in to, to you know just help move the story along 
if it gets people to watch what they wouldn't watch before, I'm in favor of it. I mean, if it gets if it gets somebody who would never look at Laurel and Hardy, never look at Harold Lloyd or Buster Keaton, if it'll get them to just take a look at what the um, um, what the geniuses did what the, what the geniuses did back then, great, that's wonderful. I I I I go okay, fine, I'll accept that. But yeah, you're right. These these they were filmed. They were filmed for specific venues, specific conditions. Um, they would go in and they would, they knew in advance that they were going to be black and white, and they lit them and they designed them mm-hmm. for black Beautifully. and white. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like the Adams Family TV show, okay? If you've ever seen color photos of the set, the set was pink. And the reason it was pink was that pink under the studio lights provided the right contrast to the the predominantly black and white costumes that the actors were wearing. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's really weird to see them against this, you know, vivid pink background, but it was shot deliberately that way. I I remember my shock. I grew up watching the Munsters. And I they, when they made the movie, um, I was about nine or ten, and I, the shock of the way that they made up Herman, the color green was I was like it, it kind of threw me because it wasn't what I expected. I was expecting yeah. like um, color the way that uh, the, like the um, Frankenstein monster was made uh, in color movies. I wasn't... He was made green. It was the weirdest thing. I mean, I didn't... I I don't even... I still don't understand where they... Why they decided to make him green. I'll I'll tell you why. The makeup that Karloff wore in the first three Frankenstein movies had a green tint to it because under the lighting conditions that they were using, it made it appear a very ghastly, pale look. It, if they had made his face up with, you know, light makeup, white, you know, grease paint, it would have washed him out. But the green provided just enough contrast to, you could look at him and go, yeah, that looks like a dead guy walking right there. For Son of Frankenstein, there is actually a short test reel. In fact, I'll take that back. It's not even the test reel. It's uh, eight millimeter footage that somebody shot when they were doing the color test of Karloff wearing the green makeup. And so the Frankenstein monster being green, in reality, that was the way he was made up in the black and white movie. When they got around to doing him for television, they followed through. He was, they used the green tint to make him look, give him that pallor, you know, on black and white TV. And then when they make a color movie, well, they did too much. They went in the opposite direction. Oh, but it was of, such a weird color green on the yeah. monsters. I mean, it was, it was like a blue green. It was just yeah. bizarre. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, well... I, 
I was like, I I enjoyed it. I mean, it was still a good show, but it was funny. It was, you know, same actors. It was really, um, they even, um, even though Yvonne Craig's uh, character was supposed to be a vampire, they gave her a, a, like a yellow tinge, it, mm-hmm. it, but it was a different color than the grandfather, who was also a vampire. Yeah. So it, 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 it was stuff like that. It it just, I, the color palette, and this is it's still a memory from when I was, um, when they, they, what they did for it to make uh, the people want to see it at home was they gave a copy of it to schools. And so um, just before, um, I think it was Easter vacation, they gave it to our school and we watched it in the gym, all all the kids, it was like an assembly. And that's the first time I ever saw it was on the big screen. Um, because uh-huh. the next time it was shown was on television. Um, yeah. And but the thing was, I came home and and I told my parents they knew I I you you had to get a permission slip to because you were staying after school. Uh-huh. And they knew and they said, well, did you enjoy it? I go, yeah, but it was weird. And and Dad goes, what do you mean it was weird? I go, Herman was like. Blue green. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. And and oh, I can't remember her name. Lily. Lily. Lily was like uh, yellow, and and Grandpa was grayish, and it was it. I, I, and Eddie was like brown. It was yeah weird. <laughs> the, the that was because they were trying to translate the the black the makeup for black and white photography to. Uh, color. Have you ever seen the um, Frederick March version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was young. I okay. haven't seen it since, though. Yeah. They, they did a remarkable trick in it that can only be done in black and white, but it, it just works incredibly well. And what they did was they put um, blue makeup on, um, uh, what's his name, Frederick March's face to for Dr. Jekyll, uh, for Mr. Hyde. So they put the makeup on, but then they light him with a blue light. And as they're filming the scene, they dim the blue light and they slide a gradiated red filter in front of the camera, which makes the blue makeup stand out in stark contrast. With the blue light, it gets washed out. But when the light is dimmed, and the red filter comes in, it just starts to come out. And you're watching Frederick March moving around. He's, he's not doing the trick like with the Wolfman, where the Wolfman falls down and he remains motionless while he goes through a series of dissolves. Frederick March is like writhing around and grasping his throat, but he's changing right in front of your eyes. And you could only do that in black and white. You know, now they would use Special you know, CGI, but... Yeah. Back then, it made an impact. I mean, you you were looking at something and going, "How how in the world did they do this?" They 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 were they were geniuses, especially with lighting. But it's, it's amazing what yeah. they were able to accomplish. Um, yeah. We've come to the part where we're going to talk about your new book. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> so why don't you tell us about it and where they we can get it and all that good stuff. Okay, well, I'll, I'll start off by explaining, you know, 
we were just talking about where ideas come from, how writers see themselves as bombarded with ideas all day long. Several years ago, I was uh, doing, I forget what it was, but I had stumbled across a news story about something that had happened in Brattleboro, Vermont in the summer of 2000. And you actually have to go back to the mid-70s for the start of the story. In the mid-70s, there was a hippie commune right outside Brattleboro. A hippie commune, there was, you know, a lot of skinny dipping in the creek, there was a lot of topless farming, there were all kinds of shenanigans going on in the woods. And the people of Brattleboro, a lot of them didn't like this. But Vermont is one of the most fiercely independent and contrarian states that we have. And while half the people didn't like it, the other half of the people in town were, hey, it's their property, they can do whatever they want on it. And there was a big fight that went on in the community over this. Now, the way New England towns are organized uh, government-wise is that once a year, typically in March, they have a town meeting where the entire town gets together, debates what needs to be done over the next year, fixes a budget for it, figures out how they'll raise the budget, votes on it, and then once it's approved, they hand it over to a town manager to run the town for a year. And then the next year they come back and do it all over again. The thing is, if they make a mistake, if they don't budget enough, if they pass a law that has a flaw in it, they can't do anything about it until the next town meeting. So in 75, roughly, but thereabouts, they have a town meeting and they come up with this compromise that everything within the hippie commune, and the hippie commune was on a old farm and they defined the boundaries as these three roads and a creek that bordered it. Everything within the hippie commune was a clothing optional area. The moment you crossed the road, you had to put your clothes on. So this was the compromise that everybody agreed to live with. The hippies could do whatever they want on their commune. Uh, but, you know, if you come into town, be fully dressed. So after a few years, the commune went out of business. Most of the people left. A few of them stayed at Brattleboro, became citizens. Uh, the, the farm passed from hand to hand after that and eventually ended up with a real estate developer who subdivided it and turned it into shopping centers and uh, housing. And Brattleboro moved into this area, basically. They forgot the clothing optional law was still on the books. In the year 2000, somebody discovered the clothing optional law was still there and took advantage of it. And of course, Brattleboro had a hissy fit about it, but there wasn't anything they could do about it because until there's a town meeting, you've got to obey the law. And the law clearly said it was a clothing optional zone. Now, in real life, there were only about, for my research, there were only about like 12 to 16 people who ever participated in this. Um, but for my story, which is called Cheeky, uh, I, I stretch it so that, you know, all the all the high schoolers in this town, you know, over the course of the summer participate at one time or another. And it's basically a story that traces how an idea or a fad or whatever you want to call it goes from 
unthinkable to outrageous to edgy to um, chic to fashionable to mainstream to passe only it does so over the course of, of a single summer and it is being serialized right now on Kindle Bella uh, and just about every day you'll get a brand new chapter because it it follows the summer day by day as the story progresses the only uh, every every now and then I have to come you know, because the chapters are short, I have to put two or three days together. But you'll you'll find a brand new chapter almost every day, and the story is complete. It will run through until early September, and then in October we will have uh, a Kindle ebook, and we will have a POD book available through Amazon. Oh, that the sounds, story. Oh, I was going to say that sounds really ahead. cool. That sounds like really cool. It's like an old serial, like they used to do with magazines. Yes, yes. In fact, uh, one of the things that's appealing about Vela is when you look at a lot of the old classic, what we call classic literature now, like Dickens to be, you know, the biggest example, most of his stuff was serialized. Most mm-hmm. of it appeared over, uh, you know, several months uh, in various magazines. So this is, this is the same thing. And the nice thing about Kindle Vela is the first three chapters are always free, and then after that, it kind of works like uh, Wattpad. You, if you sign up, you get tokens, and I believe they give you 200 free tokens if you sign up. Uh, you know, and then you, you have to buy more, but you know you'll get 200 free as a bonus. Um, and then you pay for each new chapter using the tokens, and depending upon how many words are in the chapter that's how many tokens it costs uh, if it's if it's like 600 words you pay six tokens if it's 2,000 words you pay 20 tokens things like that but you get you get to read the story uh, bit by bit and decide if you like it enough to want to commit to it all the way because I mean we, we've all been in the, the situation where we've seen a book and we buy it because the cover looks interesting and the blur makes it sound interesting. And then we're about like a quarter of the way into it. And it's like, eh, this really isn't doing anything for me. Well, the nice thing about Kindle Vela is you are not committed to finishing the story. If you, if you get to a certain point and you, you're not connecting with it, you can go read something else, you know. Um, but if you do connect with it, then you've got a chapter on a regular basis. And it's, it's, it's bite-sized so that um, you can read it on your phone in just a few minutes' time. So if you're like, if you're waiting for something, if you're, you know, in a, uh, got some downtime, you can just whip your phone out, read a chapter, and then, uh, you know, wait for the next one to come along. I th- it sounds really interesting. Um, I, I've actually not read anything on there. Um so I'd probably try yours out. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm, I'm doing this in the hopes of getting people aware of it. Right now, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not worried about making money. I'm, I am worried more about finding readers, and I really want to encourage people to, to give it a try. Try the first three chapters for free. Uh, you see if you like it, and if you do, sign up and uh, keep reading. It sounds good. 
Um, is it going to be uh, published traditionally too after the serials done? It'll be published through Amazon, so uh, it'll be like uh, I think they call it Kindle Direct Publishing now. I may be wrong on that, but yes, you will be able to go on Amazon and order it as either a uh, ebook or as a trade paperback. Okay. And um, and when has it already started? Or I mean, the serial. Oh, it's already started. Yeah, it's already started. We're about uh, I think maybe. Oh wow, we're at least a dozen chapters into it by now, I think. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, and it's complete. So there, there are some people who are a little anxious about signing on to Kindle uh, Vela because they're worried. Well, if I start something, what happens if the writer, you know, punks out and doesn't finish it? I will never put anything on Kindle Vela until it is complete, and then the whole thing goes up. It's just scheduled to come out day by day. So if you sign on um, and you like it, you will get all the way to the end. There is a conclusion and you'll be able to follow the story all the way through. That's cool. And um, is um, is it like going to have a sequel or it depends how it sounds? I, I'll be honest with you. I, I am right now in kind of a one and done phase in my life. And by that, I mean, I'm, I'm, tired of people who write stories that don't have conclusions, that, they, you know, they leave you with a cliffhanger so you'll come back for the next book. Um, I mean, I, I enjoy certain types of, uh, you know, serialized fiction. I mean, not serialized, but series fiction. You know, when I was a kid, I read Doc Savage, for instance. But personally, I'd rather have, I'd rather write stories that reach a conclusion, and when they're done, they're done. But I am writing new stories all the time. Uh, come September, I will be starting a, uh, a new serial on Kendall Bella. It'll be called Uncle Lard, which is set in the early days of the television industry in 1946. And uh, I have more stories in line after that. And so there'll be there'll be quite a few things that I've done that'll be coming up over the next couple of years. That's cool. Um, we've come to the end. So for uh, people who didn't hear your first interview with me, um, <laughs> would you uh, give your website and any social media you have? Sure, sure. Uh, my my blog is buzzdixon.com. That's all one word: b-u-z-z-d-i-x-o-n. Uh, I am on Facebook. You can you can find me pretty easy. I'm on Instagram as Buzz Dixon Writer, and I am on Post Social as Buzz Dixon Writer. Great. And um, do you have any events or anything coming up, uh, like book fairs or conventions or anything like that? Not not on the uh, horizon very soon. I mean, I've I have promise to attend a convention in uh, in uh, early fall, but I have to wait until they actually tell me what the date is. So okay. <laughs> I'll let people know then. All right, that's fair. Um, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to come chat with me so we could catch up. 
I'm I'm delighted to do this, Sherry. Thank you very much for having me on. Let me tell people about Cheeky. Yeah, I mean, I'm really I really want to read that. It sounds like fun. Thank you. Um, and thank you for chatting with Sherry. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time.